We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good to see you all. I feel like I have fuzz for my mask on my face. Excuse me. Do you ever feel that's a very strange feeling? It's good to see you. Good to be with you today on this beautiful Sunday uh, morning. And uh, thanks for joining us here. If you're a guest, man, welcome to Emmaus. It's our, a joy to have you with us. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, uh, just, just welcome. We'd love to meet you after the service at the Connect table, which is outside on the, uh, on the sidewalk. So feel free to stop by, ask any questions you have about Emmaus. And um, we'd lo- just love to get to know you there. So thanks for being here with us. We hope that you feel welcome. And we hope that today when you leave, uh, you have a deeper um, love of Jesus at whatever level that is for you um, now. And to our covenant members, we just love you. We love walking with you uh, and, uh, and love uh, being gathered with you. So thanks for being a part of what we um, are doing here, what the Lord is doing here. Hey, let's pray. And then we're going to look at a text today from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, 13 through 25. Jesus, you are um, kind to bring us here, and we thank you for that. Father, from from all different places and experiences this week, we have gathered here, and we've gathered here to sing about you and to confess of who you are and to be reminded of who you are and to be reminded of your grace towards us who believe. And so would you do that for us today? Would you stir within our hearts um, thankfulness and awe and worship for who you are? and what you have given to us in your grace. Father, today we pray for our nation. Um, Father, many who celebrate and many who are um, mourning, uh, many who are angry and many who um, are um, delighted. Father, we pray for wisdom for our leaders. We pray for discernment and God-given wisdom um, to make good decisions for, for our nation and for the lives of people. And Father, we pray today also for those who live around the globe who do not know the gospel and have no access to the gospel. They don't get to hear this beautiful story that we're talking about throughout the day here. Father, may you call forth from your people, even in this church, men and women who will go to the nations and declare the good news of Jesus. Father, draw from amongst them your elect to be saved. Show them your grace. Speak to us today, Spirit. Preach a better sermon than I prepared. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's read Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope that in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Last week I did my best to convince you to try a devil's on horseback. If you remember, if you were with us, a pitted date stuffed with blue cheese, wrapped in bacon, baked in the oven, this this explosion of flavor in your mouth, at least one of you on the way home bought ingredients and made them and liked them. I'm disappointed in the rest of you. <laughs> I did my best to convince you that this was something you should try, an explosion of flavor for your mouth, but, but we likened it to, the, to this passage and to the gospel. This idea that a gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone is an explosion of flavor to our soul. That if we would simply taste it it would change our palate for the rest of our lives. That most of us have lived our lives and continue to, um, to lean towards living our lives on the stale crackers of works-based justification. Right? That we want to earn our approval before God. We really believe we can and we really long to at the deepest core of our hearts. And even those of us who have tasted salvation by grace and not by works, often find ourselves leaning back towards the efforts within our own souls and within our own bodies, with our own practice throughout the week to actually please God and to be justified by God. We see it in the fact that if we sin, we believe God's more disappointed in us. And if we do better, we believe God's more pleased in us. That's at the root, works-based justification. This week, we want to not only, like last week, see the flavor of the gospel, but we want to take a big drink of the gospel. In this chapter and in the letter as a whole, Paul is trying to ignite our souls with the flavor of this gospel so that we may be ever more in awe of Jesus, so that we may be ever more united to each other, and so that we may be ever more faithful in the advance of the gospel. Right? That's what he's doing within this book, and he's pouring the gospel over, showering us with the gospel. To begin with today, I'd like to read a portion of Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon from this past Friday, November the 6th. Spurgeon says, When believers fall into low, sad spirits, they often try to lift themselves up by chastening themselves with dark and cheerless fears. That is not the way to rise from the dust, but to continue in it. It is the same thing as calling on doubt to increase grace. It is not the law, but the gospel that saves the seeking soul at first. And afterward, it is not a legal bondage, to but, uh, legal bondage, but gospel liberty that can restore fainting believers. Oppressive fear does not bring backsliders to God. 
But the sweet wooing of love will draw us to Jesus' embrace. Spurgeon goes on, this morning, are you thirsting for the living God? Unhappy because you can't find him to delight your heart? Have you lost the joy of your religion? Is Psalm 51 verse 12 your prayer? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Are you conscious that you are barren like dry ground, not producing the fruit for God that he has the right to expect of you? Do you sense that you are not as useful in the church or in the world as your heart desires to be? And I add to to Spurgeon's questions, do you doubt that you are loved? Do you doubt that you are accepted, that you are pleasing to the God who saved you? Do you wonder if he's disappointed with you or frustrated with you? Do you wonder if he rolls his eyes when you come to him with a need or if he scoffs when you fail again? Spurgeon continues. Then Isaiah 44, verse 3, is exactly the promise you need. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. You will receive the grace you require, and you will have it to the farthest reaches of your need. Water refreshes the thirsty, and you will be refreshed and your desires gratified. Water is needed for life, and your life will be enlivened by fresh grace. Water swells the buds and makes the fruit ripen, and you will have grace to produce fruit and made fruitful in the ways of God. Whatever good quality is in divine grace, you will enjoy it to the full. You will receive the riches of divine grace in plenty. You will be drenched with it. Like the meadows are sometimes flooded by overflowing rivers in the fields, and the fields are turned into pools, you will be also. The thirsty land will be springs of water. Today is my prayer that our souls would receive a pouring of the gospel over them. Right? That we would be like thirsty, quenched um, people in a desert and water is just being poured over us. You get it in your mouth, you get it on your hair, you get it down your back, it is all over you. I pray that that's the gospel for us. And so I'll tell you our pastoral charge from the very beginning. Drink. That's it today. There's no other pastoral charge today other than just drink. Drink the gospel that God has poured over us through grace. In our passage today, Paul's continuing his argument that righteousness before God is not based on works, but on faith. It's not those who work for their salvation who are declared righteous, but those who believe that God justifies the ungodly who are declared righteous. Paul argued that this was the case for Abraham. Last week in our passage, he said Abraham was not justified by his works, but by his belief. He believed God and he was counted as righteous. We saw this in chapter 15. Abraham believes God who has counted him as righteous. In chapter 17, 14 years later, he was circumcised. So Paul's pointing out Abraham didn't work for his justification or for his righteousness, but it was granted to him through belief. Now, in verses 13 through 15, Paul helps to explain why the promises of God are fulfilled through righteousness by faith and not by the law. Let's look at verses 15 through, or excuse me, 13 through 15. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
Paul says that if righteousness comes by works, then faith is null and promises are void. Right? So, so let's just look first if faith is null. What does he mean by this? Right? If your righteousness comes by works, if you can earn your righteousness, if that's a path to being righteous for you, then there is no need of faith. It has no place for you if you can earn your way by works. Or you don't need faith to work really hard. You just need discipline. But faith is what plays into our salvation. If you're striving for salvation by works, your faith is in yourself, church. Right? Ultimately, it's a question of faith. Where do I place my faith? If you're leaning on your own ability, then ultimately, at the end of the day, your faith is in yourself and your own ability to be good enough, to do enough, to be right enough. But if you can be saved by works, then faith is null. And if you can be saved by works, if righteousness come by works, then promises are void. Right? God's promises, or God promised that the belief of Abraham would be counted as righteous. Later, we're actually going to see in this passage that Paul says this promise was not just for Abraham, but for all of us. Right? So if he promises that your righteousness comes by faith, but you can be saved by works, then his promise has no meaning, has no value. It is void. Verse 15 helps us understand the significance of this. Right? In verse 15, it said, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Right? The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the law, or, or for our, uh, the language we've been using, uh, your uh, righteousness by works brings God's wrath, not his blessing. Why? Well, it's not because the law that God gave to us in the Old Testament is inferior, but it's because we are incapable. Right? It's not that the law was inferior to save, but that we are in, incapable of keeping the law. The point that Paul is making is that you and I are not capable of, of obeying it. We're not capable of keeping it perfectly. Kids, you never obey your parents perfectly. And for us who are adults, I hope that we realize we've not been perfectly obedient to God the Father all the days of our lives. At least once you've messed up. At least once you've failed. At least once you've stumbled. And you go, well, Josh, that sounds pretty good. Right? When I'm in school, if I miss one question, that's a, that's a passing grade, unless it's a one-question test. The problem is, this is a one-question test. James 2.10 says that if you keep the whole law, yet stumble over one part, you have broken the whole thing. This is a pass-fail exam. And all of us have failed. You don't get to bring a checklist of your law-keeping and say, see, I got a 73%. It's not great, but it's passing. You bring your checklist of everything that you think you've done well. One mistake, one failure, one stumbling, one disobedient act, one simple thought, and you fail. The law brings wrath because no one keeps the law perfectly. Not you. Not I, not Abraham, not Paul. So hear me today. I plead with you. 
If you're clinging to a works-based form of salvation, if you're clinging to your own ability to earn your salvation, your righteousness, by behaving well enough, doing enough, um, loving others enough, being religious enough, disciplining yourself enough, you will fail. You have failed. You can't do it perfectly. Therefore, you can't do enough, and you are not righteous. If perfection is required and you are incapable of perfection, then guess what? We need help. And God so loved the world that he sent help. In God's kindness, he sent help. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the adherents of the law, but also to those who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In verse 16, it says that um, righteousness depends on faith in order that, one, the promise may rest on grace, and two, it may be guaranteed to all of his offspring. See, here's the beauty of a gospel that depends on faith. It rests on grace not works. Therefore, it is guaranteed to all who have faith. You don't have to wake up in the morning questioning whether or not you have it. You don't have to wake up in the morning wondering if it's going to be true to you. You don't have to wake up in the morning wondering, hey, is he going to keep the same set of standards today as he did yesterday? Like a child in a home with a parent who can never make up their mind about rules, you don't have to wake up and go, I wonder what's going to make mom and dad angry today. Paul's drawing our attention to the good news of this gospel. He's drawing our attention to the beautiful security of righteousness that's based on grace and not on works. You see, if our salvation's based on works, then even the possibility of us being perfect, right? Even if you think you've been perfect, the very possibility of that would always be at risk because one slip up and you have lost your righteousness. And this doesn't bring rest for your soul. It doesn't bring peace to your mind. It brings constant worry anxiety, fear. He's drawing our attention to the truth that we've been hearing the last several weeks, that everyone needs Jesus, and anyone can have Jesus if they believe. Paul's comforting you, Christian. He's drawing you in kindness and comfort, believer. And John Calvin reminds us about this. talking about Paul in this passage, Calvin reminds us that Paul wants to comfort those who rely on God's gracious promise, not their devotion to the law. He says, thereby fear and trembling, unceasing disquiet and despair are removed. Instead, we have sure knowledge of divine mercy and peace of conscience in the presence of God and repose. A disquiet mind, despair, they're they're removed. They have no place in the life of the believer who has faith that God saves the ungodly. Rather, we get to rest with clean conscience, a peaceful conscience that God saves those of us who have faith. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone should be a weighted blanket of comfort for our soul should be a weighted blanket of comfort for our soul. 
The gospel is water poured upon those of us who are thirsty, who are quenching um, for long and quenching and longing for security. Those of us who are aching for peace and who are grasping for some semblance of unwavering steadfastness. The gospel is this to us. In verses 17 through 22, Paul addresses an important question for us then. See, the, the situation is this. If, if we are children by Abraham, and Abraham is saved by faith, right? If, his, if he's counted righteous by his faith in God, and we too are counted righteous by faith in God like Abraham's faith, then there's a really important question. What kind of faith did Abraham have? What did Abraham's faith look like? What was Abraham's faith in? This matters for us. Because it's not just any faith that saves, but it's faith in God as Abraham had that's counted as righteousness. So what was it about his faith that was counted as righteousness? First of all, in verse 17, before we get to the five characteristics of Abraham's belief, in verse 17, just see this, this foundation for his belief. God made him the father of many nations. Look at verse 17. As, is it, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Right? God did this work. God called forth in him to be the father of many nations. And before we go further, realize this, that it was God who did this work. God bestows this identity upon him and made this promise to him, you will be the father of many nations. It's Abraham's belief in this God who made this promise, which saves him. So what did this belief look like? Well, first of all, in verse 17b, Abraham believed in God, not himself. Abraham believed in God, not himself. His faith was not in himself and his own ability to be the father of many nations. He was well aware, church, that he could not be the father of many nations. Abraham was old, 100 years. Sarah, his wife, was old, 90 years. They were way past childbearing days, and they had never had a child together. Right, their whole life, day after day, night after night, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, they had waited for children, and the Lord had not given it to them. They were infertile. They had not been able to have kids when they were young and strong. Now that they were old and weak, well, there was no chance. Abraham came to a place where he no longer had faith in himself, but in God, and so must we. We, church, must come to a place where we no longer have faith in ourselves, where we realize we have no ability to produce life. We can't stir up and create life within ourselves, righteousness within ourselves. It takes God's work to do so. Secondly, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 17c. Let's just read all of 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed God, or believed that God could call forth life from among the dead. Abraham and Sarah's bodies were now as good as dead, old and broken. Sarah's womb had been as good as dead her entire life, 
unable to bear children. Abraham and Sarah's hopes in having a child were dead, and he believed that God, and yet he still believed that God would give him life. Later in Abraham's life, we actually will even see that he believed God could literally raise his son from the dead. God gives them Isaac in Genesis 21. In Genesis 22, Abraham's told to sacrifice Isaac to God, to literally lay him on an altar, slit his throat, and offer him as a sacrifice to the God who had given him this son. And Abraham does it. Now, spoiler alert, God stops him from killing Isaac. God provides a substitute for him. But Abraham goes in obedience to do it. He has the knife raised to kill his son. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham did this because Abraham believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead. Abraham believed in a God who, would, who could call forth life from among the dead. And Abraham believed in a God who calls the, into existence the things that do not exist. And this is the same idea we see in Genesis when God created everything out of nothing. He believes that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Right? Abraham did not have a single son, let alone a large family of sons and grandsons. Yet he believed that God could call into existence the very things that do not exist. You've promised me that I would be the father of many nations, and there is no evidence of that, but I believe that you could call many nations into existence where there is no existence. You could just lay the nations before me. You could just create man anew and lay them there. You can call into existence that which does not exist. So Abraham believed in God, not himself. Secondly, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Thirdly, in hope, he believed God's promises when there was no hope. In hope, he believed God's promises when there was no hope. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Literally, church, the deck was stacked against him, right? As we've seen already, he's ancient, his wife is ancient. Their, in their inability to produce children had been verified year after year. Surely people were talking. No one had hope for them. Yet he had hope in God's promise when there was no sense of hope to be had. Fourth characteristic of his faith. Trials did not weaken his faith. Verse 19. He did not weaken his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Right? Abraham, you're going to have a son, and from that son, many sons and many nations. And Abraham looked at his life, and there was a trial standing in the way in front of that. He's old and unable to have children, and his wife is old and unable to have children. And in the midst of this, his faith did not weaken. Right, when the trials were presented, and by the way, this went year after year after year after God's promise. God didn't promise him a son, and the next month he got pregnant. Well, she got pregnant. God promised them a son, and decades went past. And his faith did not weaken. 
Fifth, he did not waver in faith, but grew stronger in faith. So not only did his faith not weaken in the face of trials, it didn't waver, and it even grew stronger. Verse 20, no one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't waver. Night after night and month after month, year after year passed without the fulfillment of this promise, yet unbelief did not take root in his life and cause his faith to waver. Instead, these very trials, this very waiting, this very relying on God caused his faith to grow stronger. And it says his faith grew stronger as he gave glory to God. Notice the correlation. That as he lived and saw the promise not delivered day after day, he continued to give glory to God. And as he gave glory to God, his faith was strengthened. There's a correlation between us giving God glory in our lives and our faith growing stronger. And his faith grew stronger as he was fully convinced, it says, that God was able to do what he had promised. As he became more and more fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, his faith grew stronger. How do you become more and more fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised? By sitting with the God who has promised that day after day after day in the midst of lost promises and him still being faithful. Over and over again. And verse 22 tells us that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. So let me recap. Abraham believed in God, not himself. Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed in, or Abraham had hope and believed God's promises when there was no hope. Trials did not weaken Abraham's faith. And he did not waver in faith, but he grew stronger in faith. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Look at me, church. If you're like me, and I know that not all of you are, but if you're like me, um, this is really difficult to hear. Because my faith is not like this. Just within the last seven days, I've struggled to remember that God loves me and he accepts me and he sees me as righteous, not based on my perfection, not based on, but based on his grace. I've struggled with this five particular times within the last seven days. I faced accusations of failure and sin and I ran to workspace justification. I faced fear and anxiety over making a major decision, and I ran to acceptance, to an acceptance based on my ability to make the right decision. I faced a family medical condition and ran to old, false thoughts of God's judgment of me and forced on my family. I faced a person who was deeply hurt by me, and I ran to self-hatred and belief that I had failed God and his people. 
I faced a week of unending news about a contested election, and I too felt anxiety and distrust of God's sovereignty. On Monday, it didn't feel like my faith was being strengthened. On Tuesday, it felt like my faith was slipping away. On Wednesday, it felt like someone was stabbing my faith a thousand times with a knife. On Thursday, my faith felt like a nauseous anxiety. This model that we see here of perfect, unwavering in the face of uncertainty, ever-growingly stronger faith seems so unattainable to me that it almost discourages me. So it's important that we see the whole story. See, Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. When it says that his faith was unwavering, every day wasn't unwavering. When it says that he never, that his faith never grew weaker, some days it grew weaker. Allow me to take you to Genesis and walk through very quickly. In Genesis 12, Abraham believes God and he follows him. In Genesis 12, Abraham doesn't trust God when famine comes. He doesn't trust God to provide for him, and instead he turns his family towards Egypt and goes to Egypt for his provision. And as he enters Egypt for his provision, he looks at his wife, who he realizes is very beautiful, and he knows that the leaders of Egypt will want to take her as her own wife, and they'll kill him to get her. And so he tells her to lie to them and to tell them that she's his sister so that he will spare himself. And so Abraham literally offers over his sister to another man to be his wife so that he will not be put to death so that they could get her. God is very kind. God does not allow them to harm his wife or to touch her inappropriately. God gives Abraham his wife back and many riches. I've always thought that must have been an awkward camel ride out of Egypt. In Genesis 15, Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, I will give you a son in many nations. And Abraham believes, and it's counted to him as righteous. In, Abraham six, in, in Genesis 16, Abraham takes God's promise into his own hands, though. Time has passed. There is no son. Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes to him and goes, listen, we're not getting pregnant. Why don't you take my, my servant, Hagar, and sleep with her and have a son? And Abraham takes Hagar, and he sleeps with her, and they get pregnant, and they have a son named Ishmael. Abraham, instead of relying on faith, took God's promise into his own hands to fulfill works-based results. In Genesis 17, Abraham laughs at God's plan in disbelief, and he pleads with God to make the promise come through Ishmael. Right? In 17, God comes back to him, I'm giving you a son. He laughs at him in disbelief, and then he goes, please, please make your promise come through Ishmael. Because you see, church, it's easier to have faith in that which is already there than that which is not yet seen. It required very little faith to believe that God could give him a multitude of nations through a son he already had. It required much faith to continue waiting. In Genesis 20, once again, he lies about his wife. They're going into another powerful nation. They, he tells his wife to lie, tell them you're my sister, and the same story happens again. 
This time God shows up in the wedding chamber of the man who has taken his wife and tells him, if you touch her, I'll kill you. In Genesis 21, Isaac is born to Sarah. And in Genesis 22, Abraham believes that God could raise Isaac from the dead and he obeys God to sacrifice his son on the altar before God stops him with a substitute. What is my point? Well, Abraham wasn't perfect in his faith. He believed God, yes. He believed God raised the dead and spoke life where there was not life. He believed God's promises, but not perfectly. Abraham doubted God's rescue. He took survival into his own hands. He doubted God's promise of a son. He took making a son into his own hands with another woman. He laughed at God's plan for him. And he begged God to require less faith of him by choosing Ishmael. Abraham's faith was not perfect. So why does Paul say that Abraham believed and did not waver and was not weakened in the face of trial, but instead grew stronger and therefore it's counted to him as righteousness? Tom Schreiner says, how can Paul make this statement when the Genesis narrative obviously includes regressions as well as advances in Abraham's faith? The answer, Schreiner says, is that Paul is not trying to chronicle in detail the ups and downs of faith in the life of Abraham. The words, he did not doubt, characterize the basic pattern and direction of Abraham's life, which was ultimately typified by trusting God, not by doubt. He didn't waver in the sense that he persevered and persisted in faith. Now that is hopeful. Because on Monday, it did not feel like my faith was being strengthened. And on Tuesday, it felt like my faith was slipping away. And on Wednesday, it felt like I was slowly being stabbed. My, I was slowly stabbing my faith a thousand times with a knife. And on Thursday, my faith felt like a nauseous anxiety. But on Friday, on Friday, my faith found footing. And on Friday, I saw again God's kindness and on Friday, God restored my soul. And on Friday, the flavor of the gospel exploded within my heart. And on Friday, the gospel was poured over my thirsty being, like water poured over a thirsty man. And I drank deep. You see, Abraham didn't have perfect faith. He didn't have constant faith. But he had preserving faith. When he doubted, he came back to belief. When he sinned, he came back to repentance. God preserved his faith through all of, the, all of these trials, and this faith was counted to him as righteousness. Do you feel that relief? As Calvin said, our fear and trembling, unceasing disquiet and despair being removed. Do you see the light of sure knowledge of divine mercy and peace of conscience in the presence of God? Thirsty souls, do you taste the cool water of gospel hope? Hungry soul, do you taste the explosion of flavor of the gospel within your heart that says you don't have to be perfect in your faith, you simply persevere in your faith. And God will preserve those whom he has called. Verse 23 and 24, it says this, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is not just about Abraham, but it was about the church in Rome and it's about the church of Emmaus. This salvation by grace alone and through faith alone and Christ alone is, is our story. It's our offer that if we would simply believe, we would be saved. We would be counted as righteous. Hmm. He says, if we would believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. See, our faith church is a faith in the God who raises the dead and calls into existence that which is not in existence. We have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he one day will resurrect all who believe. We have faith that God has called forth life where there was not life. Our hearts were as good as dead. No, no, they were dead. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses, children of wrath, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had for us, even while you were dead in your sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, not by works, you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift, right? Not the wage, but the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You were dead And in the midst of your death, God called forth life. He put into existence what was not in existence, faith. And that faith was counted as righteousness within you. And it made your heart alive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And had nothing to do with any works that you produced, but was a gift of grace. We are counted righteous by believing in the God that Abraham believed in the God who did what Abraham believed he could do, the God who has proven to do what Abraham believed he could do, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and spoke life into us where there was no life. And so church today, the one pastoral charge is simply to drink. May our thirsty souls just drink the gospel today and this week. God says, believe in me who gives life where there is no life. Church, if you believe that, you are made righteous. Unbeliever, if you have not believed that, you are not made righteous and there is judgment awaiting you. But all you must do is believe and receive life. Would you believe today? Every week, we take communion to conclude our message, conclude our time together. And we come and we take this bread and this juice as a representation of God's broken body, Christ's broken body, and his shed blood on our behalf. We remember that through the death and the shed blood of Christ, God then raised him from the dead and gave life so that all who believe in him might have life. I pray this has meaning for you today, church. If you're a believer, we invite you to come take with us. 
In a moment, you'll stand, you'll exit to your right by rows, you'll come down to the front, you'll receive hand sanitizer here before the table, you'll receive a piece of bread. If you um, have a gluten allergy, we have gluten-free crackers as well. And then you'll go get your juice and go back to your seat to take it. We'll do one more song and be dismissed. If you're an unbeliever, we ask that you not come take this. Rather, today, stay in your seat and just drink of the gospel of Jesus. Eat of the flesh of Jesus. Take him. Eat Jesus today, he says. If you take me, if you come to me and you take me, you have me. All need Jesus, and we can all have Jesus. To believe in Jesus today and be saved. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this word. We pray that you would just warm our hearts with it, that you would refresh our souls with it today. May it stir within us preserving faith. We pray these things in your name. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.